I know that a lot of people are not going to believe that this is even possible, but we effectively walked away from, from $14 million. Dominic, by the way, I've not, I've not revisited this. I've not spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's really, it almost feels Sorry. like a therapy session. This is, this is, is this a podcast or am I meant to be laying down on the couch? Right? We live in a time where anything's possible, where entrepreneurs are doing stuff that governments only dream of. And this is the time we live in. So if it's true that you get what you pitch for and you're always pitching, if it's true that you can pitch almost anything into existence, if you pitch it enough and pitch it the right way, then go for something great. Today's guest is Daniel Priestley, someone I'm proud to call a mentor and a friend. I first met Dan back in 2017 when he was the keynote speaker at an event that I was emceeing and his speech on the entrepreneur journey blew me away. He's the author of Entrepreneur Revolution, Key Person of Influence, and Oversubscribed, three of my favorite business books. And I'm really excited to have him on the show to share his wisdom with you. If you like what you hear, please like and subscribe. It will mean the world to me and will help get this podcast in the hands of as many people as possible. There's really good stuff in here. Enjoy. Daniel, welcome to the show. My first question for you, what's the most important thing that you've ever had to pitch for? Oh my goodness, I've pitched for investment. Um, I have pitched for competitions where we did a pitching competition. Um, I have launched businesses where we had no choice but for it to succeed. And um, I had to get up there and make sure that I was in front of an audience and that I pitched the business correctly, get those first customers across the line, um, because there was no no option. Uh, if I take you back in time, my very first business that I launched, uh, I launched on a credit card. Wow. Um, and basically, I was 21 years old, and um, I put a quarter-page ad on my credit card that was about $7,000. And I remember looking at that ad when it came out on a Sunday. It was a Sunday newspaper. And I just, my heart was just like pounding. <laughs> <laughs> like I hope this works because <laughs> I had no way of paying off the credit card. Right. right? Um, I I honestly thought I have no idea what I'm going to do if this doesn't work. So I ran the ad. Um, I think four people phoned on the day um, to the call center and booked in, and I was just like devastated. And then mon Monday there was another sixteen, seventeen calls. Tuesday there was another twenty, thirty calls. Okay. Wednesday there was thirty, forty calls. So we had a launch event um, and I think we had about 70, 80 people show up and I wasn't directly responsible for the pitch from stage, Yeah. Um, but I was responsible for everything around it, setting it up um, and ge genuinely, if that pitch didn't go well, that was it. I was basically out of business and I was out of business with 15 grand worth of startup uh, costs on my credit card Ouch. at 30% interest rates. <laughs> so I, there you go. I'm, I'm, there's, I'm a, there's a high stakes. Uh, yeah, that's pretty high stakes. I'm, I'm assuming that as we're here having this conversation that the pitch went well and, and everything kind of went, <laughs> went smoothly from there. But I think it's interesting that you bring up that idea of, you know, you weren't necessarily the one pitching from stage, but you were responsible for all of that stuff happening in, in the background. And I think you know, very often we can we can prioritize the words and really mess up the the peripherals, uh, mm. and that can be just as detrimental to to the the pitch conversation as as anything else. Exactly, the right venue, the right music, um, the right energy in the room, uh, the right lighting, 
all of that actually contributes to the success of the pitch. Yeah. Um, the pre-framing, what people know going into the room, um, you know, the the documents that they get uh, alongside the pitch. Um, also, weirdly, things like if you slightly run over two hours and people's energy crash uh, crashes. Um, I have seen the sa- I've seen uh, pitches where effectively the same pitch at ninety yeah. minutes did really really well, and at two hours bombed. Amazing, because because the audience just couldn't take it just on board. Ener- anymore. Yeah, just the energy it. energy had uh, dropped. Yeah. So if that if that's the most important, what's the one that got away? <laughs> um, the one that got away. Uh, <laughs> so when I was 23, 24, although, you know, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, um, I was, I flew across from Brisbane to Perth, uh, right before Christmas, we had had a massive year. We'd done 10 million in sales with our business partners. And essentially I was there to organize what would happen the next year, what would happen in 2006. So it was 2000, uh, 2005, this was, yeah. Christmas 2005. And um, they flew us over to Perth to their board meeting and they left us sitting in the board meeting uh, in the waiting room for eight hours. So we'd flown over on a red-eye flight, in the, arrived really early in the morning um, and they just left, left us sitting there all day right through till the end of the day. And we were so annoyed at them that we actually just broke up the business relationship. We said, we're done, yeah. we're not going to work together in 2000, with the following year. So myself and my business partner at the time, we talked ourselves out of working with them at all. Um, now, just just to kind of, and mind you, you've asked me these questions. I, I'm just free fly, freestyling, <laughs> free-flying here. In the lead up to this, they had offered us $14 million worth of stock in their IPO in order to be their delivery partner for, um, for what we're doing. And rather than just the insanity of youth rather than figuring out what would be a much better pitch to bring them around. Um, we ended the relationship and I, we ended the relationship without negotiating any severance or negotiating any, you know, handover. Um, it was just like, you've left us sitting in this waiting room, uh, for eight hours. We're done. Uh, we're not working with you anymore. <laughs> Um, and effective, I know this, I know that a lot of people are not going to believe that this is even possible, but we effectively walked away from, from $14 million. Ouch. So if, if you were, if you were kind of able to rewind and, and, you know, give you, give yourself some advice in that scenario, what, I mean, apart from not walking out the room, what would you have done differently? How would you have approached it? Would have used the eight hours to, uh, plan, come up with, um, you know, even even if materially we wanted to end the relationship, which we did anyway, we were leaning that way in a big way. We did yeah. we didn't feel confident in their IPO. Um, we felt that they were IPOing based on an unsustainable business model, and we didn't want to be part of it reputationally, right? So there yeah. were other reasons as well. Um, <clears throat> but what would have worked a lot better would be to go in and pitch the reasons that we don't feel confident going into the year ahead. Yeah, and the reasons that we're feeling um, that we're that the IPO is going to fail, um, and how we could help solve those problems, um, because had we gone in and said, "Look, these are the key problems that we've noticed. Um, this is why we think your business model is not sustainable, and we think you're going to have a great IPO, and then it's going to bomb," which it did. 
they IPO'd at two dollars and dropped to twenty cents uh, right. over nine months. Um, so, uh, so our fourteen million dollars for starters would have been one point four. Um, but what what would have worked would have been to really identify a problem and then pitch the fact that we could solve that. Yeah. Um, Dominic, by the way, I've not, I've not revisited. I've not spent a lot of time thinking about this. It's really it almost feels Sorry. like a therapy session. This is this is is this a podcast or am I meant to be laying down on a couch right now? You choose. <laughs> it, it, I'm going to go full on therapist now, but 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 take take me back to to the beginning. Like you're a serial entrepreneur. You're you're hugely successful. You're an author. You're a speaker. You you you've got lots of fingers in lots of different pies. When you when you were a kid, did you always want to be in business? I I did. I know that sounds weird. I did. Um, I discovered business at age 10 when I started running garage sales. Um, I also worked, uh, I also did some stuff with the Boy Scouts where we did car washes and um, gardening, uh, where we'd go around to people's houses and do their weeding and their gardening uh, to raise money for the Scout Hall. Did you um, make money? And I, I, I remember my the only garage sale I did, I, I got everything out onto the, the front lawn. We lit my, my, my major mistake mm. was location because we lived on a on a road to nowhere. Um, but I set up a lemonade <laughs> stall and all of that sort of stuff, and no one came, and it crushed me. I, you know, it's, it's taken me years to recover. <laughs> it, it, it was just location, location, location. We we, we smashed it. Um, we we basically, you know, obviously I wasn't in a rural setting, so uh, there were plenty of people and. We had a very busy local milk bar and I put a poster up in there and we had this, it was the time where you could put something in the classifieds and it would get read. Um, and, you know, look, I, I was making toast, jam and toast, peanut butter on toast, 6am, making toast for people who were arriving early. Um, I We sold out all our stuff. I, I got the neighbours to put their stuff on consignment, 50-50 joint ventures. Um, so look, that was my first entrepreneurial experience. Um, when I was a teenager, worked at McDonald's and I discovered the McDonald's franchising system and how that worked and discovered that a lot of the McDonald's were owned by private individuals who owned them and didn't work in them. Um, I, at school, as a punishment, got told to clean out this cupboard and in the cupboard was a um, what was called a BRW Rich 200 magazine that I found and it's the equivalent of Forbes 400 it's the Australian version of the Australian 200 richest people. And um, I remember sitting there uh, on my lunch at school. Uh, I was cleaning out this cupboard and I found this magazine. I ended up sitting all through lunch just reading the stories and didn't clean out the cupboard like I was supposed to. But I just kept reading the stories and there all these entrepreneurs who had made all this money and it was super exciting. And um, I took that magazine home and I like read it religiously, every single one of the 200 stories. Because um, you got to remember, this is before Google, so yeah. this was like the first window I'd ever had into the world of like there are these people who are entrepreneurs and business owners, and it was around that time as well that somehow I got my hands on a copy of a book called The E Myth, and this guy was saying that you can build a system that runs a business, and I I knew that felt right because of McDonald's, and I was like, whoa! So, um, I was, do you know? It's really weird. I just, it's just as a teenager. I never wanted to be anything else. I just knew that this was what I wanted to do. And you you mentioned there that this idea of kind of, you know, being 
confident to go out and sell, to go and have conversations with people, to, to ask the neighbours if they'll do a joint venture on, on their junk <laughs> in, their, in their garage. Uh, is, is that something that you had to develop? Did you have mentors? You don't come across to me as a, as a kind of salesy salesperson, but obviously building the businesses that you've built, you've, you've got a real talent for it. So how did that develop? Um, so yes, I did get pushed outside the comfort zone, but it never felt like a big deal. It was, why don't you go and talk to the neighbors, see if they want to sell anything and okay, I'll go talk to the neighbors and see if they want to sell some stuff. Um, and then the neighbor says, what's the deal? I go, I don't know. What is the deal? And they go, why don't you keep half and I'll keep half? Oh, okay. And they said, here, get a piece of paper, write down all the things. And then you write down how much you sold it for. And then I'll take half and you take half. Right. So like it was as simple like it was simple that. as that. Um, just good luck. Good fortune. Now, when I was at university, uh, for I was only at uni for a year, but I was on the weekend. I was a door to door salesperson. I was knocking on doors. I was appointment setting. So I wasn't even selling. I was just setting appointments for roof insulation company. Um, and it was hilarious. My first day, I knock on this door and my opening question is, um, what sort of roof insulation does your home have? And she says, zilch. And I went, oh, okay, thank you very much. And I walked off thinking that zilch was a brand, uh, thinking, thinking that she'd had, she'd had zilch uh, roof insulation installed in her roof. And it was only when I got halfway down the street that I went, ah, oh, zilch means nothing. I don't have any. And it must have been so confusing for her because well, she, she would have basically said, I'm going to hand it to you on a plate and tell you that I have no roof insulation. <laughs> and you're just going to walk away like an idiot. Um, so, yeah, so so that was my first go at sales. And then um, I, when I dropped out of university, I went and worked for a mentor, um, and he told me that the first skill that I needed if I was going to be an entrepreneur was sales and that I had to get on the phone and, and do sales appointments. And, um, and I took a commission-only sales role where I got 10% of every sale. And... Um, and he trained me on how to do sales and he trained me on how to go through a structured sales presentation. And it was a real formula. It blew me away. I realized I always thought that sales was very much about having um, charismatic, you know, energy, you know, clever um, chit chat. Mm-hmm. And actually he showed me that there was this process that we went through and I, I got a really good strike rate going and I, ended up making about 120 grand a month worth of sales and keeping 12 grand a month, which was pretty transformational at the time because, uh, you know, I'd been a Pizza Hut delivery driver and I'd been a door-to-door appointment setter up until that point. I think I'd worked insane hours for maybe a grand a month. And next thing you know, I'm having fun chatting with people, talking through a process and making 12,000 a month, um, which was wild. And what was the decision to leave the kind of comfort of that? Because that sounds lovely to a certain extent, especially at that age, and go, you know what, I'm going I'm to risk this. I'm going to strike out on my own. Well, I always, the, the, pre, the pre-context was, um, was that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was learning sales because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So yeah. in year one, I did, um, I did sales. <clears throat> and then in year two, uh, I pitched him this idea that he was running his business in Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. 
And I said, I've done my numbers and I think that we could make a lot of profit. We wouldn't make as much revenue, but we could make a lot of profit in small um, B cities. Uh, so there are these cities that are sort of satellite cities in Australia. Um, so Bendigo, Ballarat, um, uh, Geelong, uh, Hobart to an extent, even though it's a major city, um, uh, Cairns. So I basically said, I think we should go to these places that no one goes yeah, and we should run some launch events there and I'll, I'll run that. Um, and, you know, sure enough, I was right. We did about 750 grand worth of uh, revenue in that year and about 250 grand of that was profit. So um, I had run this really profitable little year one business experiment um, for John uh, so year year one was sales. Year two was launching this um, this kind of uh, entrepreneur uh, approach. Yeah. And and so then you you move on and set up your own show. <laughs> um, like what what yeah. are the, what are the challenges with that? With you know with none of that support and structure and um, you know, yeah opportunity for mentorship. <laughs> So the, the hilarious thing was, is you talk about bad pitching. Um, one night, John was loading boxes into his car and I was loading boxes with him and helping him out. And I said, um, I said, John, I've just run this campaign successfully and I've made this profit. Um, I really think that you should make me a partner in the business. I should have some equity in the business. Um, would you be, you know, would it be okay if you give me some shares in the business? And I remember him sort of like spinning around, looking at me indignantly and going, Dan, if you want shares in a business, go start your own business. <laughs> <laughs> so this was not a good pitch, right? Okay, in yeah. hindsight, in hindsight, I definitely should have um, slides, projections, mm -hmm. uh, you know, picked the right moment, scheduled a time with him, gone through a presentation. I should have role played it. Yeah. Uh, and 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 done all of that anyway it resulted in him saying go start your own business if you want shares in a business go start your own business and i don't think he, i think he was trying to slap me back in my box but he slapped me straight out of the box because the following week i did quit and went uh, i'm going to go start my own business and he's like what and um what are you damn damn what are you doing you know you you've only had two years of training what are you you're not ready to go start a business and it's like well you said if i want shares in a business i should go start my own business and it's like, oh, Dan. Um, so, so I went off and started my own business, um, and it was a it was a big success. We grew from like zero to a million in the first year, and then we were up to ten million in sales in year three. So it was pretty wild. And then you decided to to come over to the UK, presumably, and and essentially start again because you've now lost all of those connections and network, and and you arrive over <laughs> here. How how do you how do you pitch? something new into existence with, with nothing but, you know, a passport. Yeah. So 2005, I'd done the big year. The end of the year was breaking up with that company because of the IPO conversation and all this sort of stuff. And then effectively the following January, um, I effectively have to come up with something new. I've got to say, all right, well, what are we going to do? We're going to sign new clients and all that sort of stuff. And I'm back to the drawing board trying to find a new partner because our business was all about partnering with a company to to you know take on their marketing. Yeah. Um, and a mentor of mine, Paul, he said, Dan, you you know you're 24, 25. 
have you you've never been above the equator why don't you go and um launch in london like london you know bigger you know three times the size population and have some fun in london do a year or two in london and he said oh i could make some introductions to you for you if you want to launch in london instead and i was oh okay um so my business partners or, or my key people in australia decided to take on a small um, contract that was a couple of million um, while I left with a suitcase and a credit card and I set myself this challenge, which is I will arrive in London with nothing but a suitcase and a credit card. And if I cannot launch a business uh, on a credit card, um, then I'll come home with the tail between my legs. So I, I rocked up into London, um, suitcase, credit card, 2006 in June, July, um, incredibly hot summer and, um, yeah, launched a business. And I think we did 4 million pounds in the first year. So it was really like, bang, we, we, we launched. And at the end of year one in 2007, we had a 2000 person event at the Palladium, um, uh, London Palladium theater. Uh, and the following year we did like a massive Alexandra palace event, um, in 2008. Yeah. So we, we just started smashing it. What what was your strategy for creating connections and, and building those relationships if you if you came here with nothing? Yeah, so well the first thing I did is I I met with a few friends of friends who was who seemed to be pretty well connected and I said to them that what I'd like to do is sort of host a dinner. Um and what what were their thoughts on hosting a dinner? And they said, Yeah, let's do a dinner. And I said, Would you invite some key people you know? um to to the dinner and they said yep uh, we'll invite five or six people if you're paying um i said fine so i found a private dining room that could hold about 30 or 40 people um and they did a two courser with a half a bottle of wine per person came out at about 1500 1600 pounds um and basically my first move in month one was to try and put together a dinner party with the most influential people in my in this industry that I was going to be launching in, and um, so I put together this this first thirty people, and um, you know, and they were all very well connected. They had big databases, <clears throat> so I stood up in front of the group between courses. You know, I'm Daniel Priestley, uh, just arrived from Australia. I don't know anyone. I'm going to be launching a business here. I'd love to get to know you all a bit better. I've um, I've got the next couple of weeks free. If you want to have a cup of coffee, I'm going to come around with my diary. And my first pitch was, will you have a cup of coffee with me? Mm -hmm. um, so I basically went around with my diary and I think I signed up 28 people to have a, a cup of coffee with me um, and to meet me in London for, for a coffee. Um, so that I'd taken everyone out for dinner um, and then I pitched, let's have a one-to-one -one cup of coffee. And then I did 21, uh, 28 coffee meetings um, and that was where I signed everyone up to become launch partners, launch affiliate partners for my for my business launch. Um, and then when we launched, we had about eight hundred people uh, at the launch. Um, and we did a uh, we did a Manchester, Birmingham, uh, and London launch. So we had like Manchester event, Birmingham event, and yeah. two or three London events. Um, so we kicked off in week one with kind of eight hundred people coming to the the various launches. So yeah, I mean, this is fun, by the way. I'm going back and I'm getting, I'm getting all these memories coming back to me. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of intriguing to 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 see the kind of different tactics that you've used to to build the business. And I think one of the things you're 
really known for is a key person of influence, a fantastic book. You in multiple revisions now. It's got you know co-authors around around the world, but that seems to, from an outside perspective, have been a real kind of launch pad for Dent and for everything that's kind of come after it. What what's the story of of the creation of that concept and and that idea? How how did you come about writing a book? So a lot of people might wonder what was the business that I was running before that, and it was yeah. basically we had an agency. It was a marketing agency, and our specialty was doing these introduction events. <clears throat> so the two types of clients that I would work with um, was financial planning um, and um, uh, franchises. Okay. So a t- typically a franchisor wants to sell franchises, um, but they spend so much time being a franchisor and systemizing and, and working with their franchisees that they never get around to doing a good franchise um, presentation. And what they tend to do is they turn up to the Franchise Expo uh, or they advertise in Franchise or Magazine or Franchise Magazine and they put themselves side by side with 300 different other franchises. Yeah. Yeah. And my proposition to them was let's run dedicated events where 60, 70 people show up and get to experience or have a look at your franchise and nothing else. That's all they see. Um, So they just see your franchise as an opportunity and no one else's franchise. Mm -hmm. So um, basically, I would do these endless roadshows of just introduction presentations, and we did this for, for we did this for several financial planning companies, and um, same sort of thing with financial planners. They're very busy being financial planners, yeah. And we would run these introduction events for them, um, so an introduction to financial planning, um, or an introduction to why markets move the way they do, and um, we would get these guest speakers. So one of the keys to making this really work uh, and getting people to show up was to have guest speakers, uh, special guest speakers. So when we would do the financial planning, we would have anyone who's written a money book or any money columnists, journalists who had yeah. who'd been a well-known money journalist. Um, we would get um, people who previously held jobs at you know managed funds and big banks and all that sort of stuff. So we'd have an ex-fund manager of AMP Financial and we'd bring these kind of people in there was one guy who had a big newsletter that like had 30,000 subscribers and we brought him in and, you know, he, uh, these sorts of people. So we'd be bringing in these top speakers. Um, and we, we kind of went looking for people who had a best selling book, mm-hmm. who were good on stage, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So we could turn that into a lot of money because people would show up to see them speak. They would do a good presentation. And then when the energy is good in the room, you say, if you love that tonight's presentation, book in to have a meeting with one of the financial planners. Yeah. Or if you enjoyed that, talk to our team about um, becoming a franchisee. Mm-hmm. So this was this was the, the, the business model. The business model was come in, have a great experience, hour and a half, two hours, and then book in for an appointment with the, with the company. Um, and that's how we made our money. We, we were on performance with, with getting those results. <clears throat> so... When social media came out, I immediately recognized that these social media uh, engines, these websites, were going to be massive fuel on the fire for personal brands. Yeah. So anyone who had a newsletter was going to get 10 times more famous. Um, When I first saw YouTube, I immediately, like 2005, 
I went, oh my goodness, everyone who's an author or a speaker is going to be famous on YouTube. Like mm. they're all going to have like a big YouTube channel. Um, and then I saw blogging platforms and I thought, okay, this is the new newsletter. But I just kind of realized, because I'd been dealing with these personal brands, these guys are going to make 10 times more money as soon as soon as soon they're famous on this thing. And I realized that all of this technology was built around the personal brand. It was built yeah. around elevating a personal brand. And I knew how hard it was to get someone in front of 500 people. Uh, it's like, this thing's going to get people in front of 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people. So that's where the key person of influence insight came from, that it was like, this is the moment. This is where it's really important that you build this personal brand. And then the question is, well, how do you do that? And uh, the answer to that is, I know how to do that because I know what we go looking for. Right. We go looking for authors. We go looking for speakers. We go looking for people who have a great pitch. We go looking for people who have products that they can sell. Um, we know what good products look like. Uh, we know what a good profile looks like. Um, so all of that was essentially the bundle of what we were looking for when we were putting on these events leading up to this. Um, I mean, how did we get 2,000 people at the London Palladium Theatre was selecting the right speakers. Yeah. Uh, so essentially that was the precursor of of seeing no, us knowing what a key person of influence looks like um, and then saying, well, we know how to turn you into one of those people. Mm -hmm. uh, one of your five Ps uh, is pitch. So in mm. terms of being a, uh, a key person of influence, you've got to be uh, on uh, on the top of your pitching game. This podcast is called Why Life's a Pitch, and it'd be absolutely remiss of me not to ask you for your top pitching tips. So if uh, if you were coaching someone who'd never really had to do it before, what would you suggest they did? Well, the idea behind a pitch is there's a few key ideas to start with. Idea number one is that what you're trying to do is enroll people into a new way of thinking. You want to you want to change people's mind on something. Um, you you imagine that someone rolled out of bed this morning, not at all interested in what you do or what you're all about, and then they're going to hear your words, and they're going to get excited about what you're excited about. So you're enrolling them, you're bringing them with you. There's this great scene in the movie Braveheart, Sons of Scotland. You could run and you may live, right, or fight and you may die, right. And he does this whole speech. And they, they go from wanting to ride off the battlefield and leave to, all right, let's do it, right? Let's fight. Um, so he enrolls them into uh, fighting by using the right words, by using by getting people enrolled in the vision of, of the bigger picture. And obviously it's a movie, so it's scripted. They scripted it. They had to figure out what would get the audience to believe that someone would actually want to fight on that day, even though they're outnumbered. Mm -hmm. So they had to create the words, the script, to get people excited about yeah, they had to almost make the audience feel that, yeah, if I was there, I would fight. So they had to try probably 50 different ways of saying that until they got that particular, that key pivotal moment right. So it's the same with business. You're enrolling people to come onto the battlefield with you. You're getting people to, you know, they're not interested. They want to ride off into the sunset and you're trying to get them to turn their horse around and get on the battlefield with you. And, you know, that's what a pitch is all about. It's about changing people's mind. It's about enrolling people into something to get people excited about something that they weren't previously excited about. So you've got to start with that intention. Um, all tips and tech techniques and, and scripting tools and all that sort of stuff, they don't work if you don't start with that intention. You've got to have a core resonance that you are going to get people excited about something, that you're going to get people enrolled in this. Um, and then there is there are things about pitching structure. 
So um, you can structure a pitch, um, you know, going through a set of bases. But I'll, I'll kind of allude to a couple of the early bases that work with most pitches. Clarity and authority. So clarity is people want to know what is it you want me to do or what is it you want, you know, what what is this about? Yeah. Um, if, if people don't have that initial clarity, then they're just confused. And if they're confused, if you confuse them, you lose them. They're still listening. Right? So if they're sitting there, conf- yeah, they, they can't move past anything after that. Now, clarity is great, but if you then just jump straight into the, the pitch, the problems, the solutions, all that sort of stuff, people don't place much weight on what you're saying. So you actually have to prep people to make them ready to place weight on what you say by giving them what's called authority or we by, by sharing your authority. So sharing authority is essentially answering the question, why should I care? Why should I listen to you? Why should I believe what you say? Uh, why should I place weight on your words? Um, so, you know, there's a huge difference. If Richard Branson says, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, keep a journal, yeah. um, that's going to land with a thud. And if someone who's, you know, Mr. Broke off the street says, keep a journal, um, you kind of go, oh yeah, I can't see the point. Yeah. Um, so the exact same message could be, could be received with very different weight, um, depending on whose authority it comes from, where the authority is. Now, a lot of people hate doing authority. They hate building authority because it feels like they're bigging up themselves. So it feels like if I said, um, uh, Dominic, I've built multiple successful businesses. I've won Entrepreneur of the Year. Um, I've built and sold companies. right? And I want to share with you what I think is a really good business that I've found that I'm going to be launching and we're going to be raising some seed capital for. So... You might say, oh, okay, you've got to big yourself up. Well, actually, it's not so much bigging yourself up. Think about it more like this. If you went to see a doctor and the doctor said, okay, jump up on the operating table. I'm going to knock you out uh, with some anesthetic. And when you wake up, we'll have performed the operation. You're going to sit there and go, whoa, hold up. Yeah. <laughs> this, do- this doesn't feel right. If the doctor talks you through and says, look, this is a routine operation. We do, we've do. we done thousands of these. This is not something to worry about. Um, you know, this is, you know, what we're going to do is is this. And, um, you know, if they, if they sort of share their credentials, their experience, um, you're going to say, okay, fair enough. This is not something that I need to, you know, I can trust the process here. Yeah. So it's very human that people kind of want to know who you are, what you know whether they should believe you or not, whether they should listen to you. So those that, that is essentially just sharing the information that the other person wants to hear yeah. so that they know how, how to place weight on it. So a big, huge tip is this idea that if you're going to pitch anything, you do have to start with clarity and authority. authority. I think that authority piece is, is fascinating. I, I, I frame it with clients when I'm working with them as, as generosity. You're, you're being generous to the audience, giving them context around who you are and, and what you're able to, to provide. Um, I remember from, from my business journey, um, sitting down with a, a business coach and, and talking about everything that I did. And, and he, he went, yeah, uh, that was right. It was a brochure. We created a brochure. Um, and, uh, and he said, it doesn't mention any of your, uh, background as a, as an actor, you know, you don't talk about Thunderbirds, you don't talk about the stage and screen work that you've done. And I went, yeah, but no, no one, no one wants to hear about that. And, and the reality is just so, so 
different um and it isn't yeah of saying, look, this is who i am aren't i wonderful it's actually making it's giving people reassurance that you've got the right experience to be able to help them achieve the outcomes that they're looking for so uh, you know absolutely that that authority piece is key it's a gift for somebody else it's not for you you know what you've yeah. done um you don't need to tell people you you know what you've done but they they need to know they want to know um exactly that so with with Dent now, you you run accelerators globally for for businesses, helping them to you know, increase um, their traction, I suppose, the 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 size of their business, or you know, grow in the ways that they want to grow. Um, you you must see a lot of recurring. I hesitate to use the word, but mistakes. Like what what are the big kind of pitfalls that that people fall into and and how do you help them out of them well let, let's stick with this idea of pitching um entre the entrepreneurial journey really is the journey of a thousand pitches you are going to pitch this thing a thousand times and there's no getting around it you are going to pitch a thousand times um the only difference is if you pitch in a mediocre way you will end up a thousand pitches later you will end up in a middle of the road, mediocre place. Yeah. That's where you're going to end up. <laughs> um, if you pitch yourself really, really well, you might raise millions in capital. You might attract top talent. You might um, bring on some big logos, right? All of that stuff's going to happen if you're out there pitching a really great pitch. And I have seen people change their entire life just by changing their pitch. Uh, so there was, this, there was this woman who stood up at one of our events in Sydney and we said, oh, you know, let's give you an opportunity to tell the audience what you do. And she she basically pitched herself as a very boring, generic um, financial planner. And um, so she stood up and she she did this whole kind of like, oh, I'm a financial planner and I've been in the industry 25 years, blah, blah, blah. Middle of the road, nothing bad, nothing great. Um, and she's in front of 200 people. Uh, I think she might have even kind of almost did a little bit of a, um, something like something along the lines of, Oh, you know, you've probably come across lots of financial planners before or something like that. Yeah. Like just some sort of, some sort of anti pitch. And I said, hold your horses. Let's stop there. Let's, let's back it up a bit. And I said, have you got a super successful client that you've helped that like can't live without you that absolutely like they adore you. And she goes, Oh yeah, I've got lots of those. And I said, well, what's the common theme? And she said, Oh, they're all rural uh, families, they own farms. Um, that's my specialty. I, I work with people who own farms. And I say, well, what is it you do for them? And she goes, oh, well, I married into a farm uh, family when I was young. And um, I know farming families really well. And I know what it's like to marry into the family. Um, I help them to clarify their values. I help them to create a vision for the future. Uh, I help them to get uh, run family retreats. I facilitate their family retreat where They've got some family members who have moved to the city and they have to come back to the family farm and do a family retreat and they want to feel valued for what they're doing in the city and then the farmers want to feel valued for what they're doing on the farm and I help bring those parts of the family back together again and find common ground. And she starts talking about this stuff and it's like, wow. Mm -hmm. And I say, tell me, what, like, what are you actually, like, what's the net result of all that? And she says, well, um, the net result is they end up with a plan to secure their family farm for two generations or more. I'm like, okay, wow. Uh, so we rewrote the pitch and the pitch ended up her being, um, I do financial planning and, and family planning uh, with 
uh, rural families who own farms and I help them to secure their family farm for the next two generations and um, I help them to stay connected as family. Um, and she, when she started pitching this, it became immediately apparent to the whole room that she is a proper key person of influence yeah. at this particular thing. She should be on podcasts and on stages and she should be, you know, at all major farming conventions and conferences as a major authority on how to structure this stuff mm. and how to do this stuff. And of course she did, she got it. Um, and her entire business, you know, once she owned that and once she said, Hey, I'm not going to pitch in a generic way, I'm going to pitch my best, best foot forward. Of course that took her closer and closer to some of the biggest families, rural families in Australia. And then I think she signed up big rural families in Japan and Brazil. Wow. Um, so um, like absolutely incredible uh the the transformation that happened to her business as a result of just simply pitching differently yeah absolutely game game changing um full full disclosure um i've been lucky enough to to be coached and mentored by you over over the years and one thing that i've noticed about you is that you're very good at telling stories you you make concepts easy to understand and, and relate to and you've you've done it numerous times already as, as we've spoken today um how have you developed that skill uh, i think paying attention to what audiences respond to if i if i give you the stats and the data without a story it normally lands pretty flat yeah um I'm a, I'm a big believer that people are not left brain or right brain. They're both. Mm -hmm. They, they need to, and I mean, everyone, you know, there are some people who say, Oh no, I just make totally logical decisions. Uh, I only do what's on the spreadsheet and it's like, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, maybe that's the starting point, but you, you know, the, the, we, we all have left brain, right brain integration. Um, so I've, I've just, found over the years you you need to get people to understand that there's good solid evidence and data to back something up and yeah. also it plays out in the real world and there are good stories or good examples that you can relate to um so i think i've just been shaped you know one of the things that you'll know is when you stand in front of live audiences enough you figure out real quickly when you lose them or when you when you've got them in the palm of your hand yeah so you get a feeling of um of what it feels like to have an audience uh, captivated mm. or to have the opposite where everyone's shifting in their seat saying, when is this guy going to shut up? Yeah. Um, so I think it's that, it's that experience of being in front of live audiences. I, I kind of nurture a bit of a story bank of, of what I think, you know, this, this works, that works. How can I use it in, in different contexts? Um, do you look for, I, you, are very current quite often in in the the topics that you're engaging in but you still weave that into um a narrative so do, do you go looking for stories um to, to bring to people it's embarrassing but i consume a lot of youtube videos right. like when i'm walking down to the gym i'm watching a youtube video or i'm listening in my pocket and um if i'm on a if i'm on the bike i'm i'm listening to youtube videos and um I tend to be a bit of an addict that if I've got a spare moment, uh, I tend to pull out the YouTube app and I'm, I'm looking. And I am actually, like you say, I am actually looking for themes. I'm, I'm almost like a little goldminder digging away down the mine, trying to find stuff that's interesting that kind of strikes a chord with me. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I start noticing different things and I go, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. I'm going to start talking about that. I'm going to bring that up to the forefront. And do um, you, not that I copy stuff, but I just pick up on themes. Yeah. And do, and do you test those out? But, you know, do you, do you take something that feels familiar and go, I'll just, I'll just try and insert that into there and see how that I normally, resonates. or do you just well, rip up the script and start again? I'm, I am quite famous for going off topic and having a crack and okay. sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. Um, but you know, sometimes, sometimes I know something is true and I just have to find a way to say it the right way. So for example, I noticed a long time ago that the U S presidential elections are the formula one of marketing. It's yeah. the most high stakes marketing environment. And in particular, I noticed that Barack Obama in 2008 was the guy who really popularized social media as a proper influencing tool. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought to myself, wow, okay, so it's that's the turning point when a presidential election features something. And I remember thinking, well, I have to be the I have to be able to um I have to be able to pay attention to what's going on in these US elections. So when I saw um when I saw Cambridge Analytica using data analytics to win elections and to be really sneaky and go under the radar, uh, I thought to myself, oh, wow, okay, data analytics is going to be a big thing. Um, this is where we have to, like, this is a turning point for data analytics. We've got to be able to understand how to use this in business. Um, and my prediction for the next US presidential election is AI deepfakes, that there's going to be a lot of AI-created content that addresses people by name and talks about their con the concepts that they're interested in and that a lot of people are going to get these deep fakes, um, uh, you know, AI-created content. And, or it might actually disrupt the election, that AI content might make people um, vote in ways they would not have otherwise vote. Right. But I started saying two or three years ago, watch out for AI in the next election because it's AI's moment and AI is going to be in the election and that will be the turning point where everyone realizes that AI is is the business marketing tool that they need. Mm. Um, anyway, so that that's an example of something where I notice it and I know it to be true and I know it's worth paying attention to. So it's then how do I explain that to people? How do I, how do I find the right stories um, so that people can kind of get it and see it? Yeah. So in that case, I had to go back and do some research and say, um, you know, that there was this time called the fireside chat where, where radio was the big thing and that moved things from print to radio. And then there was the election of JFK where he did a televised debate against Nixon and he was much more presidential on TV. Um, and that those who watched, yeah, yeah, sweaty <laughs> Nixon. And, um, and it was like, it was like, okay, if I find those right stories, then I can get my point across. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Keeping on that kind of theme of of storytelling, you speak a lot from the stage. You you around other other speakers and storytellers. Are there are there particular people that you admire or have influenced your style? Yeah, there are. Um, there's a guy I've been following for years who's really popped in the last twelve months called um, Peter Zion, um, and he's a geopol geopolitician uh, geopolitical strategist mm -hmm. um and he talks about how the world works and how resources move around the world and it's a really 
difficult topic. Lots of data and visualizations, lots of really big picture concepts, but he's enthralling. And um, here's what I learned. I, I, I loved watching how he would speak from stage because I've watched him for several years. But I also, what I discovered, because he put everything he did up on YouTube, I noticed that he just said the same stuff over and over and over again. Like I could totally predict what story he's about to tell and what data he's about to bring out and what slide comes next in his presentation. If you watch a few of his presentations, you're like, oh, I know what he's about to do. Uh, you know, he's about to go into this this little this thing. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of like it was that it was that um it's that realization that the professionals are professional. Mm-hmm. You know, they do it over and over again. They're not winging it. They're rehearsed. They have their jokes. They have their stories. They have their slides. Um, and they're extremely polished. And when you think about what something, what does the word polished mean? It's that repetitive um, grinding something, you know, covering the ground, covering the same ground, covering the same ground to polish it. Um, and, you know, you, you see that those, that these people who are amazing speakers they have done it hundreds of times. They've gotten their, they've done their craft. They've figured their craft out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, Peter, Peter would definitely be, um, be a, a really um, great one. I'm just trying to think who else has been. Um... <laughs> a long time ago, I got into watching debates. Really enjoyed watching debates and um, and seeing how people debate each other. And in particular, there was a lot of debates between like Peter Hitchens and Sam Harris versus um, versus like it was atheists yeah. versus religious people, really hot topics, right? Horrible, you know, the, the, the real kind of right to the, right to the jugular kind of, of humanity um, yeah. talking about the, talking about the topic you should never talk about. I remember getting re- really geeking out on watching how they how they debate these hot topics and um, how they try and make their points and win win over the audience with their with their ways. So I, sometimes I quite like watching some of this controversial stuff, yeah, um, and and just seeing how how some of the because it's it's right on the edge. Like if you watch some of the stuff that's edgy, um, then uh, you know you you can actually it's it's quite enthralling and interesting to see how hot topics get debated but often that comes down to clarity of message doesn't it that the the the, i suppose the clarity of thinking of of those individuals is is so refined that they're able if they're good to express what they mean in in a really kind of compelling and and succinct way Uh, and i suppose if you if you put that hand in hand with um the the professionalism and the and the rehearsal and the repetition then then that gives you the package uh, I, that probably kind of links nicely to to what you're doing now with Score App. Um, now you you've launched a, a SaaS business essentially that you are um, you know, building from from the ground up, and you've been very generous on social media with sharing with people you know where you're at and and what you're doing. Um, but it seems from an outside perspective that 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 pitch has been you know, repeated and repeated and repeated. And presumably when you were looking for funding, the the quality of that pitch became even more important. What lessons have you learned from taking, you know, a a completely new business like Score App um, from the ground to where it is now? Mm. 
Well, ScoreUp has been our fastest, most successful business. So I've built other successful businesses, but nothing so quick as ScoreUp. So ScoreUp has achieved a valuation in the tens of millions um, in three years or less. And it's... Um, uh, and it's living up to the hype. Like, you know, what we said it would do, it's it's doing what we said to investors, we're outperforming. Um, you know, we've got a lot of ha happy customers. We don't have many detractors. Uh, so, you know, it's been, it's been great. So a couple of things that I've learned is with ScoreUp, we imagined what it would be like to have a big exit where we sell the company for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And what we said is, what would it be? What would it look like perfectly on that day of exit? Like, what would it be like to sit around the table? How many shares would be in the company? How much per share would we be selling the company at? Um, uh, what numbers would we be talking about that the buyer would be impressed by? Um, what would be our strategic pitch to the buyer? Um, like, what would we be? What problem would we be solving for the company that comes along and buys us for a hundred billion or whatever? So we really visualized that end result. We sort of like said, okay, we want to really know what that what that looks like. So like if you're a property developer, you would never start building without having a really clear model as to what it looks like on the day of opening, where like there's going to be this day where everyone moves in and we literally, we open up the building and it's like, you, you wouldn't talk to a property developer and you say, how tall is the building going to be? And it's like, well, it'll be somewhere between 10 and 20 stories. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of getting get to 10 stories. If it goes well, we'll keep Stay. building up. And yeah, and um, and if it's a bit hard, we'll probably just exit at 10. It's like, no, no, they know exactly how many stories and they know how many penthouses and how many one bedrooms, two bedrooms and three bedroom apartments. You know, they by the time they start building, they know how many doorknobs and how many taps and yeah. how many you know, bricks they need to, tons of bricks they need to order. So like they are super specific about what they're building. Um, so we got really, really specific about that. And then we asked the question, well, if that's what the exit looks like, if that's the end result, what would need to happen for someone to feel like they went on a really great ride with us? Like what would be the starting point? How much mm -hmm. return on investment would they get? And um, how much communication would they get along the way? And what would be their role other than just putting in some money and um, like what would we, how would they help the business grow and what sort of people would be good at doing that? So we really kind of mapped that out. And by the time we started pitching to investors, we were super, super clear, this is what we're building and this is how it gets you a big whopping big exit and this is why it's going to sell. And we were able to really clearly articulate, this is what we're building towards. Um, and then we were able to clearly articulate that we want you to come in at this amount per share and this is some of the help that we want to get from you over the next few years. These are the sort of intangible benefits we want to have from you as an angel investor. And with that level of clarity, um, the angel investors were, were blown away. They said, well, we've not seen a pitch like that with that level of clarity before. Um, and we could map it out month by month on a spreadsheet as well. So that was there. And then we made sure that we had this incredible team so we had the authority of the team. We had people who had scaled Netflix, um, you know, AI, a professor of AI. Uh, so like all of these kind of people, you know, the the Avengers of uh, of 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 who would build this kind of a business had to be there as well. So what we basically put that together, and it became such a no brainer that pretty much everyone who saw the pitch, with very few exceptions. Um, wanted wanted access to to the uh to the shares mm -hmm. 
and and did it did the pitch evolve as as you put it out in in front of audiences if we if we watch the video of the very first pitch you did uh, to to an audience would would there be much change to the the final one that you did quite shockingly you uh, a, a good pitch should evolve quite shockingly this hasn't evolved very much but that's interesting because the level of preparation that you did for this seems to be different to what the, you might have done before this one's lame is this one hasn't <laughs> changed in 25 years right <laughs> This, this one's, this one just, that uh, here's what has changed. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, what, here's what has changed. What has changed is we had no idea that um, large language models would come along and right. that ChatGBT would be launched and that they would have an API that would plug straight into this. We suspected that we would do some AI integrations. We knew that we were collecting a ton of data. We knew that that data could be put into a model um, and that at some point we'd be doing some sort of an integration with AI. Mm -hmm. um, so there was room within the pitch that there would be some sort of AI capability that we'd, we'd land upon. Um, we had no idea that the AI that would be developed uh, in late 2022 would plug straight in and give us absolutely remarkable capability straight away mm -hmm. for nothing, for almost no cost. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that did. You know, we responded to that, um, but uh, but no. Strangely, do you, do you know what's freaky? We're at about forty two hundred clients this month, and I think that our model said that we we're going to be at about forty one fifty or something like this at this particular. <laughs> like we're we're literally within a dozen, like a couple of dozen for for revenues and for numbers of clients and all that sort of stuff. We yeah. we are. It's it's freaky. Years later, we're actually perfectly tracking along uh, our plan. Amazing. Um, it, it is amazing. I, it never I, happens like that. I, I could absolutely carry this conversation on uh, all, all day, but uh, we're going to bring things to an end. Um, it's been amazing talking to you. A final question. If you could go back and give that uh, young man at the garage sale uh, a piece of advice um <laughs> what what would it be well in keeping with the theme of this episode um you get what you pitch for and you're always pitching you can't switch this off so those little comments that you make of like oh well we're not doing anything all that interesting or um uh, well i guess we're a little bit of a boring one we're not as exciting as some of those tech companies or um, i guess we're not changing the world we're just doing x y and z all of that is actually part of your pitch. Everything that comes out of your mouth is part of your pitch. So you get what you pitch for and you're always pitching. Um, if you pitch that, you know, you're worth a grand, then you're worth a grand. If you figure out how to pitch that you're worth 10 grand, then if you can pitch it effectively and someone responds to it, you probably have figured out how to make yourself worth more. Um, if you tell people that, you're a bit confused and that you're struggling and you're not not quite um, sure what to do with your business. Unfortunately, I hate to say it because like people want to be vulnerable, but you will pitch that into existence. If you tell people you're struggling, they're going to give you a pat on the shoulder and then withdraw their business from you. And then you will be struggling. Um, it's funny. I've seen people 
where they've said to me, oh, I'm so busy, I've got no time. And then they come across as being too busy and having no time, so no one wants to really work with them. And then they have to work twice as hard to get the same results, so they become very busy and have no time. Um, and then I've spoken to that person in a very cheeky way, and I've said, um, why don't you pitch that we've just hit some big milestones and that we're going to expand our team and we're looking for great people to join the team and change the pitch to we're hiring. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're busy and you've got no time, hire someone, um, You know, bring someone onto the team. So I said, rather than pitching, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, pitch, I'm hiring, I'm hiring, I'm hiring, and I want someone great. Uh, and sure enough, you switch the pitch and someone great shows up and you've now got this person. Um, if you pitch, there's no money, there's no money, there's no money, the, the, the economy is constricting, you know, the, everything's getting really tight right now. Oh, you know, things are tough out there. If you pitch that, people will hear, oh, he's struggling. He mustn't be offering very much value to people. Uh, I better not do business with them either. Um, if you pitch that um, at the moment we've got great, uh, we've got capacity to take on some of the more right clients um, and we're looking for perfect clients that we can add value to, then it's the same as basically saying we haven't got any clients, but it's a better pitch, right? And you're going to pitch that into existence. We're looking for great clients to take on. Um, and we're actually just, at the moment, we're going through a process of identifying, you know, the clients that we can add the most value to. That's a much better pitch than we've got no clients and we need some urgently. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I guess the, the answer is you get what you pitch for, you're always pitching. If that were true, pitch for something great. Just pitch big. Go, go. you know, we live at a time where anything's possible. You know, a random guy from South Africa overtook NASA as like the number one rocket launching company in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we live in a time where anything's possible, where entrepreneurs are doing stuff that governments only dream of. Mm -hmm. And... This is the time we live in. So if it's true that you get what you pitch for and you're always pitching, if it's true that you can pitch almost anything into existence, if you pitch it enough and pitch it the right way, then go for something great. Awesome. Amazing advice. Dan, thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Why Life's a Pitch podcast. If you'd like to improve the way you pitch and communicate, I'm giving away a special gift to all my listeners. We've developed the Pitching with Impact Scorecard to help you benchmark your pitch performance in six key areas. It will take you less than five minutes to complete and you'll receive a detailed personalised report packed full of insights and ideas to help you improve and grow. Just head over to dominiccolenso.com forward slash scorecard to get started.